Morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to another episode on the Tone Base YouTube channel. We are live from another conference coming to you from Decentralized in Athens, Greece. The presentations are going on right now. Uh, Scott Starnetta just spoke. I will try to get him later. But uh, the man of the hour right now, you were the closing keynote presentation yesterday. I finally got David Trump hey. on the show. How are you today, David? Great. Good. Nice yeah. to be here. Thank you. a nice you. dinner last night. Oh, wow. Fish. Yeah, that was, was awesome. Uh, really, really yeah. good. Um, I finally found, you know, a country that is very, like, has amazing fish. Usually it's like steaks. <laughs> but uh, we're good to go. I'm not going to uh, spend uh, too much time. Uh, but uh, give us a quick background. It's the first time you're coming on my show. Oh, wow. Um, I, I know you have a long history, and it's a very uh, fascinating history, very important history. Uh, go for it. Uh, well, I mean, we, for the then we dive into your latest project. Oh, okay. Well, let me just try to tee that up a bit. So, yeah, actually, my dissertation at Berkeley in uh, 1982 was uh, submitted. Includes what is said to be all the elements of blockchain and in pseudocode, or actually in a specification language, but it is not. Uh, including proof of work, when that's the only missing thing, uh, which was, of course, uh, only proposed quite quite a few year, years later. Um, uh, so it's, um, uh, you can find the link to the, there's an article that explains that dissertation and the whole thing has a really nice taxonomy of different kinds of blockchains, like permission, unpermission, all that kind is of that stuff. Is that article on Wikipedia by any chance? Reference? It's referenced from Wikipedia, but it is behind a paywall. It's by ah. Sherman et al. Okay, so what, yeah. what, what, what do I search inside Wikipedia for it's, it so I can show my view? Uh, Sherman, maybe? Um, spell that? C no, S-H-E-R-M-A-N. Sherman, and there's uh, oh, I need to be on this side. Sorry. a few other co-authors. Yeah, and the actual dissertation is on my website, Chom.com. Alan Sherman. Yeah, Alan the Sherman. The origins of variations of blockchain technology? Yeah, it's right there on my Wikipedia okay, got it. entry. Right yeah, but it is behind paywall, but if you search for it, you'll find free versions of it. And it's, uh, you know, so the dissertation is on my website, Chom.com. There's a hamburger menu, and you just follow that to publications, and uh, then you can, you'll see the actual full scan copy of it. Uh, it, it it was never uh, published in um, dissertation abstracts, but it was like in the library at Berkeley for many years. And a few people had checked it out. Very interesting. And you can see uh, that those is dates. Interesting. Yeah, a, yeah. Um, any of those like in the early 2000s? I don't know. It's really interesting. You know, in library books, there's that little yeah. piece of paper with the stamps on it. Yeah. So, and you see at Berkeley, only faculty can check stuff out for like six months or a year, like mm -hmm. at most universities. And one of the people that checked it out did it for an extended period like that. So that, there's a clue there too. Interesting. I yeah. wonder if the hunt for Satoshi Nakamoto would have, uh, Should could, have. Could, 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 could still end up in that Berkeley library. There you go. Yeah. But ch and check out the check out the, the dissertation because it's got it all in there except proof of work. So. Um, and then uh, in uh, another thing on my website, charm.com, you can see the eCash Museum. Yeah, so the next thing I was going to oh, ask yeah. about a lot uh, of the people history don't of know e about that. Yeah, so I proposed um, it in 82 when I, at the conference, 
that I organized, even though the NSA said they were going to put people in jail for having conferences on cryptography, mm -hmm. I organized the conference, which is the main conference now. And uh, one of the papers I gave there was eCash. And then in the mid-90s, I uh, launched the eCash company, and I demonstrated the first eCash payment at the first World Wide Web conference in my keynote there from Geneva to Amsterdam. And then uh, you can see, uh, if you look at charm.com, one of the projects, the DigiCash project, you can see the whole museum of all the press releases and photos and stuff. And I've got a lot of other uh, physical memorabilia from, from those days, which is not yet up in the museum, but the, most of the digital stuff is. So tell us more about eCash. Yeah, so thanks. Uh, so How did it come about and what was your goal for it? Oh, well, so I had, let's say, truth be told, my main goal was really to spread the meme that you could be in control of your own informational life that by having your own keys, you could just decide whether, you know, what you would reveal and what not and so forth. Part of that, which I think relates mostly to your community most strongly, is that the money in eCash was actually more surely yours and untakeawayable, if that's a word expression. It's unconfiscatable. Unconfiscatable. Which I own the domain and the name of the conference. There you go. Uh, that's, <laughs> I, yes, I know that. Yeah. Well, uh, unconfiscatable would be the correct term. Yeah. So eCash was more unconfiscatable than current blockchains. And I, I just real quick, I'll just tell you how that, why the, that is the blind signature. That's the cryptographic breakthrough that I uh, published at 82 as a basis for, for free cash. It's just that you can en encrypt your random choice of your own banknote serial number, let's say for $1 serial number. You then supply that encryption to the bank your bank, say we have an account. This is the way we thought of it in those days, right? So you would want to withdraw a dollar from your bank account, okay? So they would sign, digitally sign, that encrypted version of the serial number that you gave them, the $1 banknote serial number. Then they would return that signature on the encrypted serial number. And because the encryption uh, of the serial number and the signature commute, like, you know, remember that commutative from uh, whatever we learned about that junior yeah, high school yeah, yeah. or something? Then you could remove. Uh, maybe not in America. It's way later, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, don't rub it in. Don't rub it. So, but okay. But anyways, uh, then the uh, you what you get is the bank's worth one dollar signature on the random serial number that you chose. But the bank never has any idea what serial number you chose. So there's no way they can cancel that number. And so when you show up or someone else shows up with that signed serial number and and the bank doesn't have it already uh on the list and there's actually a protocol so that you couldn't the bank couldn't cheat you and say oh we've already seen that one before you have to, yeah you you just give a like a hash of part of it and then they say okay mm -hmm. yeah and then and so then you, and then you show it so not only did it protect your privacy because they don't know what account that thing was signed for from right they don't know where it came from but they also can't stop you from spending it so when you have the money you really have it there's no way people could get together and say, oh, we didn't like that transaction. We're canceling yeah, that so wallet those, those ID. Yeah, so those are two separate elements. So yeah, when I, mean, I, I, in my presentation, I'm going to talk about like the importance of the Bitcoin blockchain and the unconfiscatability and the censorship-resistant value transfer. Those yeah. are the top two properties.
Is that, that just, are you talking your own book because you own that domain name? No, 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 in general, in general, the, the <laughs> okay. two properties. You own the name, I, domain name because you realized that yeah, was the yeah, top yeah, property. Exactly. Okay. Well, that was the property that got me into Bitcoin. Really, so unconfiscatability. The, Cy the Cyprus banking confiscation when they, oh, yeah. when they confiscated 50% oh, of people's money. Yeah. I heard about Bitcoin uh, back in late 2010, early 2011 uh -huh. with WikiLeaks and... Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, Silk Road wasn't really an, in in my uh, uh, yeah, uh, that, that use case didn't really come through to no. me, but the WikiLeaks use case came through. wasn't yeah. enough for me to buy it, but the unconfiscatability property of Cyprus and then the Greek banking shutdown, which I'm going to talk about since we are in Athens. Yeah. Um, but so those are two key properties. My other question to you: well, there's two questions for eCash. One. So how the, are you going to? So, but to come back to yeah. just for a second, I mean, yeah. just this. So you, I think you were, you were going to say that the unconfiscatability and the privacy uh, are you can you can separate those properties. But I think actually technically what was going on with eCash maybe is that the unconfiscatability implied the privacy. They because if, if you don't well, they, but they yeah, but well, let's put it, let's they, flip they, it around. Yeah. If if I know if there's no privacy and I know that that payment is coming from you, then I can always just maybe block it at the. I'm just saying in principle. If you want, if you have the unconfiscatability, the strongest yeah. sense, then it implies maybe the privacy. So that's an um, interesting they're, they're, observation. They're a little bit linked. And yes, if I'm sending that payment to our- Depends on your model, I'm our, just saying. Right, to a regulated institution, it yeah. could be censored from the regulated institution's be, end, right? Yeah. But even if the go, and this is the, the thing that you talked about with metadata in your presentation. Oh, that's a whole right? other thing, yeah. Right, see, there, there is a difference between collecting metadata and the ability to stop the message. I tend to separate the two. Just because um, the, the government can know that I am messaging with you, I can still separate the fact that can they stop that message? There's one thing that yes, they know, and they can go and arrest us for it. Yeah. But their ability to even stop it from me sending Selectively, it to you yeah. is another factor. They are usually you know, connected, that's, that's so interesting. But, they, but there is a slight disconnect. Yeah, of course. There's a, you, yeah. Can, you can make systems where they're different, but yeah. yeah, so, you know, that's actually an interesting feature of our messaging that mm -hmm. I've never really emphasized or thought about separately, but thank you, is that when you send a message through our Elixir, which is fast forward mm -hmm. to our new technology, but I want to come back to you guys for just a second. Yeah, yeah, me too. You, the, okay, good. Uh, Excuse me. Um, it 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 not only keeps the social graph, the who talks to who, from being revealed, but it also means it can't be selectively right. blocked. Now, now we can debate which one is more important, right? Maybe mm. maybe it's better not to be able to send the message if it's not if they know that it's being sent, because then you have this sense of security which you really don't, and it could get you in more trouble. <laughs> but 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 on the other hand. The ability to send it, even if they know you're doing it, is still powerful. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that, so, that that's how I, in my brain, I'm able to separate the two. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so go very back interesting. Let me tell you, you a little bit about okay. eCash real, real briefly, because I don't think you know it's widely. See, the disconnect is that most many people in the original early work in, in electronic payments, uh, uh, Bitcoin, and so forth, were so familiar with with eCash that they didn't mention it, didn't talk about it, but all the new people missed all that old stuff. So most people today don't really recognize that eCash was pretty, pretty big deal. We, um, we, I airdropped a hundred cyber bucks to anyone. There was a capped total million dollars worth of cyber what bucks. What was this? In, in the, in 90, 94, 95. Okay. Yeah. The DigiCash company airdropped 
uh, 100 cyber bucks worth of e-cash to cyber bucks e-cash, right? The cyber bucks mm -hmm. currency, which was a limited uh, total amount of issue. Yeah, I want to talk about that. <laughs> okay, well, to anyone who would create a web uh, store that would accept e-cash for anything. Mm -hmm. And so we had a whole bunch of stores that took advantage of this from from, you can you can see it's really interesting that's up in the eCash Museum at charm.com. You can see all the banners of the, many of the stores. Anyways, then you can see you can click through to find their actual old home pages, and it's pretty it's pretty cool. So we had a whole bunch of of um, uh, people that were selling stuff for eCash, and we'd airdropped it. And then uh, some banks wanted to issue it. And among them was Deutsche Bank. Maybe now. A little bit on the rock spot. And this was back in, in the 90s. In 90s, Deutsche Bank was the largest bank in Europe for sure. And they wanted to issue e-cash. And so that was Deutschmarks in those days for the euro. And we helped them do it and uh, with our, our software. But I can tell you, you know, the version that we made to meet their requirements was the most, you know, industrial strength, auditable, backupable, uh, uh, controllable piece of banking software that you, you can imagine. So, cause they, they operated it from this bunker underground and the, they have very stringent uh, requirements. So it really forced us to, to get, you know, it wasn't just uh, you know, academic code. It was the real industrial uh, strength uh, version. And then a bunch of other banks want, uh, issued eCash too. So they issued Deutschmarks. And then we had uh, Mark Twain bank issued uh, doll, US dollars. We had Australian dollars by Advance Bank in Australia, which was the, one of the top three there at the time. I think it's now merged in to another bank and um, as is Mark Twain. And uh, then uh, like Nomura Securities, and I mean, not secu Nomura Research, mm -hmm. it's a big deal. Nomura is a pretty big bank. Big deal, yeah. It's, I don't know, it's, it's some kind of conglomerate, but in uh, in Japan, but it's there in their, uh, they licensed it and they used it internally. So their employees could use it to receive reimbursements for travel and buy swag in the company right. store and well, stuff like that. So just, just to give you a sense of- yeah. So so, yeah. so these are my questions, right? So oh, sure. um, it was gonna be what controls, like how is the monetary policy for the lack of a better word was going to be controlled in eCash or was eCash going to be the digital structure of the nation's currency? So it wasn't, so eCash wasn't gonna have its own exchange rate just the Deutsche, like the, the Deutschmark was going to be using the encryption of uh, eCash. Yeah, so, yeah, so and, that, and they would, and well, there yeah. wouldn't be an additional currency to, 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 to Well, to so let, the answer is uh, yes and yes, right? Because the Cyberbucks currency was a, like Bitcoin, you know, we just created it. We said, we're only going to make this amount and anyone, this is the way to get it. And that was using the eCash technology, but it was its own currency mm -hmm. and it was not pegged to anything. Mm -hmm. So it had the free, potential- free floating, free floating exchange rate. Yeah, potential to be like way bigger than Bitcoin because it was, uh, you know, 15 years before Bitcoin. But, you know, it, so we, we did, I, you know, we gave it a chance to be the Bitcoin and we actually had a bunch of places you could buy stuff online, you know, click and buy stuff with it. So we, you know, pretty far ahead with it. Um, and it had the, the privacy because of the blind signatures and the, uh, so it, it was uh, really uh, pretty, pretty much, you know, set the table. And if 
the world was ready for something like that, it would have taken off because it was very widely reported globally uh, in those days. You know, I have boxes full of press releases from or uh, clippings from all kinds of publications around the world. I've got bunches of uh, videos from, you know, news shows in different languages. And so, so the other big question is, yeah. we know um, why Bitcoin will have a finite supply of 21 million Bitcoins. Yeah. Now, that part can be debatable, whether that could be maintained for the rest of history or will consensus potentially change that. Mm. But we do have, you know, a structure that explains why and how and verifiably that we'll only have 21 million Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. But in your case, when you originally created eCash, um, what was the mechanism that would control, like, like how do I, how do, how does the world have confidence that David Trump is not going to create mm. another billion? Yeah. Uh, you got the beard, like, uh, b b b b uh, you know, as okay. a uh, central yeah. banker, well, right? Like, like, how do? How yeah. Well, does no the world one's. Get the I've never been involved in a lawsuit in my life. I've, you know, I'm, I'm uh, on either side of one. I mean, I'm, uh, you know, uh, I, I, honestly, if, if if you press me on it, I'll tear I'll tear the whole thing down. So I don't think you want to do that, uh, but. I don't personally see a tremendous difference because, you know, think about it. There's a lot, you know, it's nice to think that things are protected by a smart contract yes. or by the running code, but really it's much more of a social thing and so on. And there are large actors that can manipulate mm -hmm. things and so forth and so on. So, you know, you could just simply say that if I were to violate that, that, that you know, People just would walk away and I'd shoot myself in the foot. Right. But, but that is also and, a concern. We, we didn't even have a holdback. Yeah, so we, I did it. This I did this for the world. I just said we're making yes. this and we're giving it away. I didn't say we're keeping ten percent. I just said you know you right. you, but, but, you make a shop, you can have it. That is also actually a concern because like what you said, if mm -hmm. if you get pushed, if the let's say the government comes down on you to create more currency, and your answer is I would shut the whole thing down. But that's like no, I'm not saying I didn't say that. Okay. No, you don't misunderstood me. I said. That it's it's a very similar argument. I'm warning you, don't don't push me on this because I'll tear the whole your the whole model to shreds. But the, the point is, and it won't help any of any of us, but the point is that if we were I were we were it wasn't just me, my if our company were to violate its promise to limit to cap the amount of it that we were willing to issue, then I think people would lose confidence in it. Oh, correct. And that, so they would stop point. using that's, it. That is my point. Right. right. But let me all make, I'm going to emphasize mm -hmm. another point, which I made, which is that, you know, I did not keep any founders tokens, right? There, I did, we weren't holding back eCash. So we weren't doing Cyberbucks to make money. So there was no incentive for me to increase the amount. I, w I did the Cyberbucks thing for free for the world to, to promulgate the meme that you could control your own privacy by controlling your own keys. So it was a completely open, um, you know, air, continual promise of doing airdrops scheme. There was no intention of making uh, money off it by me. Mm -hmm. So it was for the community of people. And there was a lot of interest in it. it you know, in those days, we didn't, it was real hard to build websites and just to install the software and everything. And there wasn't enough computing power or bandwidth where you could have like millions of computers. So, but if you go back and look at my dissertation, you'll see it was, you know, I showed how to create a distributed system uh, where there was a consensus 
every block, it was a blockchain and every block there was consensus uh, and so forth. And so, you know, when it would have been natural to, you know, to implement it that way uh, as well, but it wasn't uh, initially. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, you know, let me put it, let me raise this conversation to a slightly higher Please. level. If I hadn't done the first cryptography conference when the NSA said they were going to put people in jail for doing conferences, we wouldn't be here talking about this because cryptography would have been born classified. That's yeah. what they were saying. Okay, that was I think eventually it would have broken. Well, through. Maybe, but uh, I'm just saying we wouldn't be sitting here. Yeah. yeah, but yeah, well, uh, things would have been different. classified. The time, the time I don't think you can buy different. special nuclear materials in the United States today, or if you try to file a patent on how to make a thermonuclear weapon, I don't think you're going to find that they're going to allow you to publish it. It's born classified, still, still there, not. still there. <laughs> that was the regime, but they tried to imply, force that on cryptography in those days. So because of my action to go up against that and just say, okay, I'm having a cryptography conference that is sponsored by an international organization, then that set cryptography free. Look at my website and read about the IECR and, and follow the links to the founding of it. You'll see it was published in Science Magazine that the director of the NSA said, you guys, you know, you have conferences on cryptography. We're going to put you yeah, in jail. No, no. Thank you very much. Okay, that's for, a, that's uh, the first thing. The system. Yeah. Yes. And second thing was I created electronic money and the idea mm -hmm. that a number could be worth money, and the idea of an airdrop and the idea of a double spending list and the idea of you know all those things. And I and all, many of the people who, you know, are among the the Digirati in, that are involved in the early days of all this, you know, the Bitcoin and so on. I mean. They were all, you know, they say they were inspired by my work. I mean, it, it was I created the whole the whole concept for it, and Thank then you. we demonstrated it. And I did this without commercial uh, interest, the the Cyberbucks thing, that's for sure. But then when you know we had a company, we had you know we had forty developers uh, uh, in house uh, in Amsterdam before we moved to the U.S. So um, we, I believe, we. Um, uh, you know, we had bills to pay. And so we, when banks and stuff wanted to issue it, we like work with them, you know, we helped them. Um, but then that was to back to your earlier point, you know, that was their fiat currency that was being issued. Ecash was just a, I don't know. I mean, it was a, like, it was just, the, it was Deutschmarks. I guess we would say it wasn't central bank money. It was Deutsche Bank money. Deutsche Bank demand deposits. But was, the, it was but, basically but, equivalent but, to a Deutsche but, Bank but was demand Deutsche deposit. Was Deutsche Bank interested in using your cryptography in their currency, or were they interested in printing e-cash and giving out as loans the way the current system functions? That's a good question. I think, <laughs> I think, I think the way it was implemented, and, and this this goes for the other banks as well, is that it was, it was in the, it was tied to your demand deposit account. That's the technical term for a checking account, right? Your, your current account, the account that doesn't have any time restrictions on your withdrawals. So you could move money out of your demand deposit account into eCash, and you could move money from eCash back into your demand mm -hmm. deposit account. That was the, the way it was set up. So it was really, in that sense, commercial bank money. Right. But the, the other uh, question so that is, could have, so they were that's the money that would only had a 10% reserve. Were they in those days in maybe fractionally reserving e cash it, would have been the big question. And would they have been had the ability to fractionally they reserve were. e cash? I mean, it was it, it was the money, it was 
the same money that they would loan you, right? It was there. It was not central bank money. It was it was commercial bank money. So commercial bank money is fractional reserve money, right? Yeah, it's, there commercial was a, banks uh, have a license to print money to give yes, it to you as a loan. As a loan, yeah. right? So this this that, but they give it to you as a loan by putting it in your in your current account. Right. So but they're then creating that, would, that money out of thin air. Absolutely. So then, yeah. So this it was, you know, it was it, it was an equivalent to uh, commercial bank money. Mm -hmm. But don't forget that that paper money was also an equivalent to commercial bank money. You could always go in and say, give me my money as, as, as paper money, and then come in and say, I want to put this money in my, and that was central bank money. So, and that was not fractional reserve money. So the way it was used really didn't, as I would say, I think I called it e-cash. So you might say, no, it wasn't fractional reserve money. It was central bank money. It was supposed to be like cash. And um, okay, so let's let's, let's move on to That's your current project. That's an interesting question. Yeah. Let's move on to your current project. Oh yeah, but, yeah. But I will like, but hopefully I'll get a chance to talk to you about it as well. I'm actually not a fan of I'm not a fan of airdrops when it comes to something of like things like money. Uh, but maybe we can talk about that while you talk about your current project. I was just trying to get the meme yeah. out. Uh, you know, this is just trying to help the world because I think uh, you know it's important what the public. Uh, wants that's what really causes big changes you know you can do a lot of stuff in a small community and get away with it if the big guys don't really care but if you want to change the the bigger picture you need a lot of people to, mm -hmm. to sort of back you and that's why i was trying to get the idea out to the general public really that they could protect their own privacy using cryptography all right, so let's yeah. talk about your latest project. Sure. Okay, you have um, um, Alexa and uh, Prexis. Uh, so it's uh, just uh, explain to uh, our viewers, and there's a couple of articles that I will reference and uh, put into the video description, uh, one from the block and one from uh, CoinDesk. Uh, so you have the Elixir blockchain, and uh, you're building a cryptocurrency, uh, Prexis. Prexis. Right, so... Yeah, it's a little a little more interesting than that. I think um, I think the part that might be most interest to your uh, viewers is that I have committed to well making our best efforts to release a white paper on our new consensus algorithm and currency before the end of this year. Okay. And the thing about that new uh, consensus algorithm, and the currency is that it is fully quantum resistant. So that's something that current uh, uh, blockchains are not. So I'm not an expert at quantum resistance. I don't have a huge fear of quantum computers. Maybe I should. I think so. Um, and um, but what? Um, how is that claim verified? That your uh, project is quantum resistant? Oh, uh, that, that's uh, you'll. That's pretty easily seen. You know, most cryptography that we use in blockchain today is based on public key cryptography. And so one of the early results, that was a scientific result, uh, was presented at the conference that I founded, right? Uh, that is the, not the first instance of it, but um, that you can use a quantum computer to basically break public key cryptography. And it's because of the, uh, the structure in it that, that that special attacks work, and what 
we're using the cryptographic primitive that we use in, in praxis is the the weakest possible assumption. In other words, it's the strongest possible cryptography. It doesn't have any structure. It requires no structure in the in the algorithm. So you're essentially saying that if people can invert random functions, uh, then they can break it. Otherwise, they can't, and that's that's about as good as you can do. So we've taken it all the way. That's the kind of codes that governments use. They don't, you know, you think the NSA uses elliptic verbs to protect uh, command and control systems for nuclear weapons. Uh, think again, you know, it's uh, government secrets and government uh, security stuff is based on time-honored, uh, you know, uh, type of cryptography, which we're using. So that's great. You know, it's a little odd that they ask you to use something that they don't really use themselves. And then they set the standards and then it turns out they're cooking the books, right? Recently, it was revealed that they built a trap door into one of the elliptic curve standards that was set, right? You know about that. The um, NSA random numbers uh, generator, it was public. So why would you think there aren't trap doors in the other curves or all curves? If you look at computing and the history of computing and cryptanalysis, one thing is it just it's very, very obvious. Governments spend way more money and have much more like super dedicated people and we'll do the craziest things well, to get they ahead. the money so they can spend a lot of it. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But they want to keep on keeping on. So that's why they want to break codes. And, and the thing about the breaking codes is that they never tip their hats that they can break a code, right? Because that destroys all the value they have in that attack. So like during the Second World War, the U.S. could break the uh, the uh, German submarine yes. codes, but they never saved those passenger ships when it would it would make would it cause them to have to reveal the fact that they right. broke the codes. Yes. So similarly, today there's a battle on for domination of global currencies, obviously between the East and West. It's 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 become the major weapon of choice globally, money and access to the payment system, as you know. And so the domination of global currencies is the highest priority to the major nation states. So it would be extraordinarily naive to think that they wouldn't be willing to spend some uh, cryptanalytic uh, research to like be able to take that shit down if they don't like it and to be able to break all the so other codes so, in the world. So, you, so if you think they don't have it, then I don't know what you're smoking. So, so you believe Bitcoin's blockchain is in jeopardy? I'm just, I'm not, look, I don't want to say that, but I'm just like, look, Think about it. Go do a little look at you can find online pictures of some computers that the NSA made 30 years ago. If you extrapolate that in today, you know what Google said they did. You know, don't be fooled by what I've said this before. But, you know, Google does have never made any money by any of their other innovations besides spying on you and selling the ads. But they, they do all these high profile, funny things to try to create the mystique. They are really a technology company that's smokescreen for their, their, the fact that they're spying on you and stealing all your data and, and maybe distorting you know, uh, our freedoms, right? So, um, and, our, and our ability to access information. So if you think that they, you know, their 54-bit break or whatever was uh, you know, state of the art or something, you know, that's, that's, that is, you're, you're, you're really fooled. I mean, the, the US government and the Chinese government have both publicly said they're gonna spend 10 billion plus on, on public research in quantum, but God knows what the, you know, where they are uh, on it. And the NSA uh, four years ago famously said, oh, hey, like we're gonna have this 
get you public guys off of off of out of off of quantum breakable stuff. That's already four years ago. So if they're saying that, you know, they're not the kind of people that will warn you, you know, yeah, yeah. Say, well, you know, too far. I mean, so I, I, you know, it would be imprudent to assume that that some government actor, there's no government actor that has the ability to build a quantum computer that can take down Bitcoin. I'm a, that's, I would say that's a scientific thing. Now, I don't want to be, don't blame me. You know, don't shoot the messenger here. I'm just, I'm sharing with you. Look, I've been involved in cryptanalysis for decades. I broke a bunch of codes. I looked at a bunch of uh, stuff I, in a white hat fashion. I did it for, you know, the good guys. But, uh, you know, one of the codes I broke was the Swift coder. It was made by a company called Graytog. I broke it up one side and down the other on a single flip chart. And they had to pay me to fix it. And, uh, you know, that was protecting all the money in the world in those days, the, the, the Swift code or the blue box. Um, and the same technology was also used in military systems. So, I mean, I, I've been involved in that. And the way I broke it was with what's called differential cryptanalysis. But I broke it before differential cryptanalysis was invented by Adi Shamir and published by Ali Beham and Adi Shamir. So I, I was way ahead of, you know, this guy. Kind of, I mean, don't forget, I also broke the first eight rounds of, of DES way before anyone else did. So I know about cryptanalysis. I know about military coding. I know about commercial stuff. I know about these government guys have known them forever because they came to my cryptography conference. You know, they, they, they all turned green when I said, hey, you guys think we can stop us? You're now all members of our International Association for Cryptologic Research. And these, these guys who showed up at the conference without giving their, their affiliation, but all mysteriously lived in Laurel, Maryland, you know, they, that, that they sit in the front row, it just freaked them out because now it was over. Cryptography was out of the bag, right? We now have, you know, every year, three conferences and uh, major conferences and a bunch of workshops. They're sponsored by the association that I formed and announced right there, secretly formed without using any telecommunications because I knew they were list might be listening and just announced there. And that was right. it. It was over. I want to get back to your project. Back okay, to back to my project. Um, so what do you think about proof of work that Satoshi invented and is that wait a minute wait a minute Satoshi did invent it that was of one of my no one of my co-authors that no it's published this is known it was I think it was it presented it in a paper in uh, was it uh, 94 by uh, Noor Moni, Moni Noor is one of my co-authors on the some of the uh, offline eCash paper with with Amos Fiat and then um this, the, the paper was Dwork and Noor, I believe, and, and Cynthia Dwork presented it at the crypto conference. And I was, I was, I remember sitting there watching it. Uh, that was my conference, and uh, you know that this the ICR. So this why I have the link to put in the video description. Dwork and Noor. Dwork. D W O R K. Yeah, Cynthia Dwork and, and Moni Noor. Moni. M O N I. Well, I mean, that's his. Nina Noor. Noor. Yeah. Noor. Yeah. Yeah, that was the. Um, okay. Yeah, so that was, uh, you know, There's they they they. Cash paper by them. Um, yeah, but before that, it was presented at uh, at a crypto conference, and, and they they did it as a way to prevent spam. They yep. said, okay, you know, if you when your email client receives uh, an email, if it doesn't, if there's no proof of work, and it's not going to show it to you. That was their. The, well, that was the also paper the they gave. Adam Back as well uh, with Hashcash. Yeah. I believe that the notion of proof of work was was first. Okay, so let's say mining. 
uh, burning electricity. Yeah, that was that was in the nor the dwarf or paper because that but it was aimed at, at preventing spam. I don't think they said that's the only thing you'd use it for. When they right. presented it, I remember being there. Uh, I was actually I remember where I was standing when I was watching them present it, and I was thinking to myself, man, you know, this is really interesting. I bet there's a lot of other things you could use this for, but those guys are from IBM, so they probably banded it, and they're already working on that. So I said, well, I'll just, you know, leave it. Yeah, here, a preliminary version of this paper was presented at Crypto 92. 92, yeah. Okay. Um, okay. In Santa Barbara. That was, that's... That's the same room where the, that conference that I started in 82, uh, that was the, the, you know, like the 11th or whatever. Right, so let's scrap on who invented proof of work. And uh, will your project have an element of electricity burning proof of work? Uh, uh, our consensus your... algorithm is not based on proof of work, though. Okay. Uh, and it, but, so we get proof of finality, which is what you want in a payment system, to both, both counterparties in like 20 seconds. And no other payment system in the world has that. So we get quantum resistance, quantum secure, if you want to call it that, proof of finality to both counterparties within tens of seconds. So that's the real figure about from the initiation of payment to proof of finality is held by the counterparties. So that's that's the real deal. And we can do hundreds of thousands of transactions a second. Okay, so and our and our blockchain is way harder to take down than anything else. A quantum computer won't take it down, but it has other robustness characteristics that are uh, not available in other blockchains. And that will become more clear when you when you see the white paper when it comes out, hopefully this year. Yeah, no, I'm uh, looking forward yeah, to- Yeah, so it's uh, really hard to take down. So if there is no element of proof of work, because right. in, in the Bitcoin uh, ecosystem, proof of work also determines uh, the money supply and how new currency is being created. Yeah. So what would be the mechanism of new, uh, well, the, the name of the of the of the currency would be Pixar, uh, right? Um, well, we haven't, we haven't announced any currency, announced so we're, okay. no. so the the we're the, not saying that we're going to issue any currency. Okay. The we're token, a U.S. company. The token that gets created, because there will be a token involved. I'm not saying I can't there say may that. Not be a token there may okay. not, I mean, I'm just we're a U.S. company, so we we haven't yeah announced anything. Okay, got it. Um, okay, so then I can't ask the question as to how new tokens get generated and how they get distributed? I guess you can't. Okay. But <laughs> the, our consensus okay. is really, really fast and strong. And we do have a way to do like payments that's, that's uh, so are much you, better are than you other open, stuff. So as a US company, are you yeah. open to the idea that the traditional banking system would be initiating and creating this, uh, this product uh, but it will be secure, immutable, uncensorable, unconfiscatable, which I think the actual money system should have always been. Maybe there would have been no Bitcoin. <laughs> uh, look, let, let, let's just back up here for a second. I mean, you know, the, I think anyone who wants to issue money should be able to issue money. That's, um, I, I can I, I can be any other side of well, that. Well, I argument. mean, from a test, a technologist, okay? I mean, uh, <laughs> as a matter of principle, I'm not really happy with anything that's out there, and I have my own ideas about how all this stuff should be done. But that's a not that's a topic for another day. Yes. Um. So, what? To me, 
the biggest thing that has happened in decades has been the fact that Bitcoin raised to such a high profile while it remained outside of the control of governments. I think that's the essential and really interesting thing. Now we have a cryptographically enforced structure which is outside the control of governments. That is something that has never existed, wasn't really anticipated, and I think changes everything. And so, you know, I'm kind of riffing on that. Yeah, no, no, and I, and I think that's very, very important. Yeah, uh, I but, think that's the... Uh, but, uh, and my, my final question oh, yeah, would be, how do you get, like, um, are we, uh, can, we uh, can we claim that what you're building is decentralized? Because uh, because that's one of the claims in a lot of the publications, yeah. including the block that I shared earlier, where uh, you have this trifecta of how do you make something scalable, uh, decentralized, and uh, secure. This is the trifecta dilemma. Yeah, Unless so the, the so-called trilemma yeah, from trilemma. Uh, Vitalik. Yeah, yeah. But the the yeah. So when you read our white paper, you could ask yourself who is who is right me or vitalik or what about you know oh i i think vitalik was always wrong that's been my uh, <laughs> that, 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 that's been that's been the assertion of this youtube channel since oh, really? uh, it started wow yes. yeah okay uh, <laughs> so yeah but uh, i think that um you know let, let me add let's just talk about privacy as one last point okay mm -hmm. you can have your control over your money and and uh you know uh uh you know destroy the uh, fiat uh, uh, fractional banking systems of the world and, and all that. But if you lose your freedom because your privacy has been invaded and society has been manipulated so that nation states can start to, to become much more authoritarian and repressive and the ones that are already authoritarian can become more and more repressive, then you lose your global freedom. So I would su submit to you that the metadata privacy problem, that that's the real focus of our company. Mm -hmm. We're using the fact that these mechanisms are outside the control of government to solve the metadata problem. So I think the only way to solve it, we shred metadata in real time before it's even created. We are solving the meta freedom problem. If you don't solve that, if you lose, if the nation states ramp up and, and lock down and, and, and ratchet down the uh, personal freedoms and everything, you're probably kind of fooling yourself that you've got this financial liberty with, uh, uh, because that's, you know, once oh, that yeah, becomes, no, no, no. you got to realize it's, it's a subsidiary to overall, you need a certain amount of basic freedom. And if, what we're seeing now in the world is we're losing that that basic freedom because the the Googles, Facebooks, WeChats of this world are able to spy on everything you yeah, do well, and no they're manipulating there. public opinion. Yeah. Well, so that's that's the big challenge right now. So what so just to put a fine point on it, what we I'm doing and what our two projects, uh, Elixir and Praxis, are doing is we are creating an alternative to WeChat and the like payments integrated with messaging that is all metadata shredding and, and it's gonna be unpermissioned and globally available to everyone. So we're basically collapsing a trillion dollars worth of market value that was illicitly gained by stealing 
people's data and manipulating and destroying our democracies, right, and taking away our basic freedoms, which, which you know, take precedence all over, over everything else. We're creating a structure that can preserve that. And I think talking about this right here in Athens, where 2,500 years ago, there was a, you know, so if you're interested in Athenian democracy, look at my website and follow the links to the sample voting, read about it. That's the governance voting that we're going to use yep. in our system. It's much better for, it's the only known way to have unviable votes in a cyberspace. And it, it is, because it's sample voting, it's the only kind of voting that scales with the size and complexity of, a, of the thing you're voting on, which is like a blockchain. You need different groups to review every single code change. We're not really getting that today, but with, with, the, with the sample voting, you know, we designate a thousand randomly picked nodes or people to check a, each patch, each change. And then they, they know that their, their vote really counts on that and they really look at it and they, have, they don't know who the other voters are and their privacy is protected yeah, no, in no, the vote. I'm, so I'm that's, our, there. that's a our, better- We need significantly better technology in our privacy of communication. Definitely. That, I, that, there's no argument there. I wish that's how Google and Facebook and uh, when Facebook won WhatsApp. But it's WhatsApp, not just the communication. I, I, it's I also the money. I, I hate it it's WhatsApp. also the money. It's because all, the money will undo it. It also applies to Whatever money privacy, money yeah. digital data. Because it, it, people are always worried about money revealing everything you do. Yeah, yeah I'm with you. Yeah, I'm with you. so you and need I, a boat. And that's the, what we're doing, boat. The, the, the question is, um, uh, which I'm not going to ask, but uh, I want to <laughs> move on to decentralization. But once your white paper comes out, yeah. uh, if we can do another interview, because sure. the question I'm wondering is, how is your project going to be financed? Uh, that's the big question. Uh, but uh, but let's talk about decentralization for a minute. Okay. Um, so um, that's the trilemma, right? Uh, the decentralization part. So Satoshi was able to achieve sufficient decentralization by being an invisible person that released the code and it kind of grew in the wild while Bitcoin was worthless for a year and a half. Yeah. Um, people spend money with mining burning electricity that achieved decentralization and my claim has always been that no other project since bitcoin will ever be able to achieve what bitcoin did in its first two years because every project since then required a person of good stature or poor very scanty stature <laughs> that's very charismatic to promote their project and, and kind of be the sole dictator of the code in that project and everything else. Oh, We're seeing this yeah. now with Roger Veer and Vcash on the fourth and, yeah. and uh, with the Craig Wright and, and okay, I don't want to weigh in on, on the yeah, yeah, no, no. Bitcoin so, politics, so, so, but uh, but let me let me say this that- How do you achieve decentralization? How does David Chom achieve decentralization? Uh, I would urge you to read the, the sample voting uh, article that's up at uh, the RSV, uh, uh, just go to my website and there's a, there's a, one of my projects has curtains and it's the sample voting. Go there, read the white paper on the sample voting webpage, website, um, and, and you'll get a sense for the kind of democracy. It's actually what we've done, what I've done, and I've been giving keynotes at democracy, at the, like at democracy conferences. We ran a real binding election for the Council of Europe with this technology, the uh, social choice theory. People invited me to their big deal annual, twice, every only two years conference, give the keynote. So if you, it, it's a real breakthrough, but it is actually a clone of the Athenian uh, um, jury system, which was actually the, the final seat of power that created, that allowed Athenian democracy to, to create Western civilization in 140 years. 
the fine, it really, you know, you could read about that. So basically, I've taken the only proven model for democracy and applied it now because of because of internet technology. It can apply to much larger societies than the Athenian so Greeks. Why didn't that last? It was in place 2,500 years ago. Yeah. When did it die, and how did it die? Well, that by that's a that's a somewhat of a different subject. But during its 140-year reign, once people got you know, it's like Bitcoin. It took a while to get going. It took a whole generation. Once the farmers realized that they really could control the whole country through the jury system and by volunteering to the legislature and stuff, but the jury, you know, the jury had more power than the legislature, then they were able to uh, create Western civilization in roughly actually only 100 years. So if you need it, it's okay. So, so, but that technology that they had would not scale at all. And that's why we have representative democracy, right? Because you, it, Athenian it, democracy it, would not scale. It was based on every citizen knowing enough about anything to be able to weigh in in a, in a, mm -hmm. in a vote of 300 or 1,000 people, secret ballot vote at a jury uh, on any issue. And that does not scale when the complexity of society, the scale of society grows. That's why we have representative democracy, which is now we're starting to see because of the transparency of information technology, representative democracy don't really work that good. They can't really read all the legislation, let alone, you know, let alone. Oh well, yeah, we have that problem now. Like in the it US, doesn't so scale. The, like the, did you see the Obamacare bill? It was 33,000 yeah. pages. Oh really, yeah, so it's a, it's a joke. And no one, you know, you don't, you're supposed to know your representative, but now the scale of the district is so large that you don't. And so you've got these professional politicians, the whole thing's completely broken six days to Sunday, but the, uh, seven ways, whatever the expression is, but the, um, uh, the, so the idea of, 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 of the, the juries, the, that was the only way to scale it geographically. Cause you know, you had, you couldn't have, it wasn't just one city anymore. It was like a bunch of colonies or whatever. So you had to be able to have representatives represent you in a, in a, at some distance by horseback and all that. But now, and only now I would maintain because of the web, the white, uh, the smartphones, people the, the ordinary persons have access basically to enough to information that's sufficient for them to weigh in on essentially any issue that's not like super technical right and and they can also like see what other people say read about it you know ask experts and so on so with that that's the inflection point which we've just reached and what that enables is a resurrection of the the, the greek jury system but now on a national global scale, but we are, you know, implementing it for our, the governance of our uh, new uh, chain, Praxis, and that's that's what's going to make Praxis uh, more distributed and uh, um, more hard to take over by anyone. That's one, and uh, more more, uh, um, you know. Uh, democratic, system. Yeah, yeah, any system. Because we're not saying if you have a lot of money, you can manipulate it. We're not saying if you have, you know, because we don't want that. We're not saying if you can get a bunch of people just to come in and try to civil attack it. You could do no. We're making it so it's robust against that. So we have it's really controlled on a you know sort of one person one vote. But the sample voting means that everyone doesn't have to vote on everything because that's what dilutes the value of your vote to be useless when there's a lot of complexity and a lot of issues. 
So we just say we randomly select the voters for each issue, and we prove that we randomly selected them, and then they they vote on that issue, not knowing who the other ones are. So no one can manipulate them because no one knows who is voting on a certain issue, right? And then then when the votes are, are revealed, uh, the voters who voted on that may, may become public or not. There's even ways to prevent that. But what it does is it it makes sure that each voter only has one issue to look at, and they have plenty of time to deliberate on it, and they know that their vote's going to be counted technically, and they know that it will really count because there's only a handful of, you know, 1,000 voters. So it's much, it makes economic sense to vote for the first time. And because, you know, you're, you're basically breaking the whole thing up into manageable chunks, it scales to the size and complexity that you need to address. So, you know, uh, it's it, so like, for example, well, anyway, so sample voting, read about it. It's, it's the way to do governance, and that's what we're going to do. It's already running. We, wrote, we ran binding elections. We ran test elections at my crypto, cryptography conference, mm -hmm. ICR Crypto Convent, and other security conferences to make sure that, you know, the security and crypto community thought what we were doing was good. And then we ran the binding election. Uh, and we have what we call proof of decoy. So the reason that, I'll just ramble about one last thing. The reason that we, you can't buy votes, don't forget, any electronic currency allows vote buying today. So it, it's, it can wreck democracy because most countries around the world allow voting outside of polling places now. Partly because people are so sick of, you know, they're disenfranchised. Dis dis well, it's so uh, hard to get people out of the house with their fancy electronic devices. People don't devices. care about <laughs> democracy as much as they used to. And they're not, you know, so most polling place voting is not the norm. It's, yeah. it's not required no, in most countries. Now, the and least so, they can do is give you a holiday on that day, so it's yeah, a day off for go. God's sake. <laughs> yeah, but you know, it's very it, the mechanism is so uh, blunt because you know everyone's supposed to vote on everything, so you really mm -hmm. and it doesn't make economic sense to participate because there's so many voters. So the quality of what you get is very, very poor. Look at look at governments today. I mean, they're easily manipulated. So what, with with sample voting, it's it well, it's quite different. But let me just talk about the vote buying thing real briefly. If for sample voting, we'd have enough elections to elect the head of each department in government. Uh, and we'd be able to compare pairwise their qualifications with every other applicant. So you'd have merit-based people running each function in government. If you don't believe in centralization, you know, I think you like the fact that when you flush the toilet, the shit disappears, right? You need some, that's the ancient Greeks realized it too. They needed like centralized guys who would do the military design of ships, you know, and so forth. You can't there's, there are places where centralization, to some extent, is really beneficial to everyone, but you need the, the public control over it. So, but okay, so why, so why can't the sample, why is, what is proof of decoy? How do we prevent vote buying? Voting out of the, you know, when you don't, when you don't have a, when you can vote outside of a polling place, you can use your phone to make a selfie of you voting and sell your vote for a currency online. That's, that destroys, right, but, but that's, that's vote buying for remote voting. Well, let me just finish. So I, we solved that in the sample voting with decoy ballots and proof of decoy. So a decoy ballot is a ballot that you can request and that will not be counted. But, and when you get the proof of decoy, you can check that it won't be counted, but then you can sell it and be sure that it will never be revealed as a decoy, but it will never be counted. So you can safely sell it to the opposite side of the question and basically waste all their money and drive the price for bought votes basically down to the point where, where real voters won't be willing to sell them. So we have in sample voting a way 
to allow remote voting. And remote voting is what's needed for governance of any blockchain because we're not going to have booths. So our uh, Praxis and Elixir systems will exhibit and demonstrate this far superior way to, to do governance that's scalable and that is not manipulatable. Right. So, so um, everything you described, I, you know, let me just uh, clear up some confusion because I got a little confused. So you're in this, this, your, your explanation right now of voting, yeah. you're not actually tackling the global voting system. You're just using that as an analogy to describe how the consensus within your blockchain is going to work, which could also potentially apply to solving the global voting system. But that's yes. not what you're tackling. The, the, well, your explanation, if it goes there, then yeah, you're if right. If it goes there, right? Like, yeah, you, if it you, goes there. Your project is not yeah. to tackle global voting. No, no, you, but just, we are demonstrating you're, you're, it. Right, you're, you're using um, the concept of global voting for consensus within your blockchain to, to help remove this metadata collection. That is the main goal. Uh, I, I think I think you mean, I'm a I think what you said. No, I, I thought. Oh, maybe yeah. if you just change the global state sample. Yes, you're absolutely right. We use. So I'm just saying that I've invented sample voting, and it also has decoy ballots and proof of decoy that stops vote buying, which is a problem globally because of electronic currency, and it would also be a problem for our uh, consensus mechanism. So our consensus mechanism. Uh, sort of putting my money where my mouth is, right? We are going to use sample voting, and we are, and we, so that will allow us to prevent people from buying votes because of the decoys and the proof of decoy. And we will set a good example. And if people want to use it for in governments, or, or even if governments, you can also use it without government approval. That's an interesting thing about sample voting, because the cost is thousands of times less than running a, a, a non-sample election. So we allow the, anyone who really wants to have an election to, to have it without requiring help from government because you don't need booths and it's much cheaper. So it's a very democratizing uh, thing, but, but it's perfect for blockchain governance. And that's why our blockchain, when it goes mainnet, will be much more democratically controlled than any current blockchain, in my opinion. Got it. Okay, uh, we'll, we'll wait for the white paper, and yeah. then we will hopefully I can get you back on to talk about the details Absolutely. of the white paper. I'll make sure I read it. Uh, <laughs> quick word: any but, any yeah. any thoughts you want to give on Ethereum? What's your opinion of the project? If you, you can say no comment, most people do. They don't want to backlash from the Ethereum community. Uh, I have a problem with Ripple. I've been against that nonsense from the beginning. Look, I'm a fan of the whole community. I think what everyone in the the difference between our community and the rest of the world is we're doing stuff because we believe in the ethos and we're trying to make the world a better place. And that's a fantastic thing to be involved in. So I think everyone uh, needs to, you know, appreciate everyone else. And, you know, there's a lot of infighting. It's because people care a lot about it. But the, the, the real thing is we're all, you know, make we're pushed. We're doing something that's outside the control of governments and we're changing the world in a very fundamental way related to information technology and money. And these are turning out to be some of the most critical things in yeah. the world going forward. So, okay. well, yeah. Well, one more thing, what about Zcash? What do you think of its privacy and its security and the way that project started and is currently trending? Well, uh, I'm supposed to now call 
Tim Zuko, <laughs> who used to work for me. Yes, that's why I asked. As, you know, I mean, he's a dear friend of mine. And, you know, the truth is, he worked at, for me at DigiCash. You can see that in the DigiCash Museum. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's also, I'm, I'm, if you go to Elixir your homepage, there's a 10 minute video, which I'd love you to watch. And you'll see Zuko in there if you look. I'm actually uh, walk up and talk to him. And that was uh, BBC footage. But the, um, you know, so I led Zuko try to find a better kind of payment thing while he was essentially working for, allegedly working for me. So he was just free to do research. That's my recollection of his employment there. And I supported him and it was a little bit irritating for me because he was always saying, I'm going to try to find a better way than what you do. And, you know, and I was like, oh, sure, go ahead and let me help you. And uh, so I'm in a, he's, you know, there was a, I'll tell you a funny story. One Zuko called me up and said, you know, I really want to go to the crypto conference, but I don't have enough money to go. When was this? I don't know. And so I said, like okay, man. 2013, 14 ish? Whenever it was. I, 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 I bought him a ticket and got him in and everything. And, uh, you know, he's a friend of the family. I, I love the guy. Yeah, he's, he's a lovable guy. Everyone knows that. And, he's a very uh, nice guy. Lovable, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, he is. And a uh, wonderful guy. So, you know, what can, what can I say? He's, you know, right now he's done a lot of the heavy lifting to make people think that a privacy protected, uh, blockchain payment is is probably a good thing and that's uh fantastic for me so uh yeah i'm i, I love it all and I, you know and, and uh you know i've seen some of his uh, uh attended his public some of his public presentations and thought he did a, a fantastic job of communicating these ideas to the public so i'm a fan all right um i will let you go on my final question which is more personal in nature um so who does david chubb look up to professionally uh that's a living that, that are currently alive today so who are like uh who, who do you look up to like is it snowden is it uh like, like these people julian assange like, like who are you uh looking up to in this realm of the cryptography privacy uh cryptocurrency space well I think the heroes in the, uh, you know, serving the public interest have, I think, you know, I think what. Not a, I don't ask easy questions. I think you're learning. Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to, you know, there are what, people what like in blockchain space channel. that have really pushed things forward and are somewhat of a, like a pure play. And I'm a, I'm a big fan of, uh, of them. I think this is the real movement that's really making the difference. And of course, those people that have endangered themselves to, you know, set cryptography free and to uh, uh, make the public aware, be aware of the significance of it. I'm a big fan of theirs too, but, you know, you know, if every person, you know, changes over their career, you know, people, you know, college students are, you know, generally very idealistic and then they're married with kids and they become investment bankers or whatever, lawyers, and, you know, it's, it's a, there's a, you know, it, it look at, we've recently seen, so, you know, it's not, let me, I would say the cult of personality is one of the biggest problems that society has today. This is no way to run a, a world by, every time we elect someone, it turns out they're a totally different animal than we thought. And that's more true here in Greece. I don't know if you know about the, so then, <coughs> so, it's, it's, you know, people are really suffering from, so, so what you've got to get out of this 
just focus on the big names and the personalities and all that. And no, no one is a, no, I think my career speaks for itself. I've never, like I said, I've never been involved in any lawsuits. I've always been pushing this agenda. And um, so uh, uh, and I appreciate others that have, that have similarly a pure play, but the real focus should be on trying to find mechanisms that are secure enough that we can all be 101% sure that they're not being manipulated by anyone that we can use to organize and govern uh, society to make the, the world what it could be, because it isn't now what it could be. And uh, we are at a pretty critical juncture, like losing democracy and destroying the planet and selling out the future of the kids and all this, like, this is, you know, so uh, this is not the time to look for heroes. It's the time to look for mechanisms that, that are secure against manipulation by uh, small groups, and that's that's what we're all, that's why that's our ethos. That's why we're all working on this. All right, and uh, closing thoughts. Uh, floor is yours, and uh, I'll let you go to sightseeing in Greece. I know you have to. You said it's your first time here. It is. Uh, it's an embarrassment. So I said yesterday. And it's on your website. Yeah, I got a big picture of the Acropolis. It's been on my homepage for years, but I've never actually been there. I'm going to plan to go there today and then again tomorrow, um, because to me, you know, democracy is the whole game if you don't if you if you if, if you don't value the individual uh, enough to respect their influence on how things are organized then you know that's not the kind of world that i signed up for all right excellent pleasure it was, hey. uh, thank you for joining oh, this I will was awesome keep an eye on your white paper i will definitely reach out once it's out and we yeah. can have a discussion you know yeah. i'll get someone a little more technical than me on the show as well um like a jimmy song and then we'll go oh, through it oh wow yeah <laughs> i think people will find that our white paper is a lot easier to understand down to the metal than i also i, I understood the satoshi wipe. i have a degree in financial engineering i'm not that much yeah. of an idiot when it comes to the tech stuff yeah. um and i worked on wall street uh with the quant team building oh, wow. risk models oh, okay. uh so i have a little bit i just hate I programming i'm not very good at it <laughs> <laughs> this is a lot more fun yeah no this is fantastic it was great and really great to get have a chance to talk to you and i love your Excellent. your questions and i think we've really accomplished some good stuff here so thank oh, you again thank you so much and i'll be in touch okay look forward thank to you. it thank you pleasure Hey guys, that was a really good interview. Um, I enjoyed it. I'll throw in uh, some of my thoughts later on. I see Adam back and I see Scott Stanetta. So how am I going to get them over here? This is really, really great. Um, hold on one second. I'm going to go catch them. Hey, um, hey, why don't you uh, take over? Uh, yep, I hate dead air. Okay. Um, so right now, I'm gonna go set up. Um, I'm gonna go grab Mr. Scott, Doctor Scott Stonetta. Are you live? I am live. Oh, cool. And Mr. Adam back. But while I'm doing that, I'm gonna give my microphone uh, to Paul, and I can't pronounce Greek last name. <laughs> uh, and uh, he's gonna tell you about his book, The Crypto Factor. Awesome. Thank you. Go for it while I set up some interviews. Oh, okay. Oh, and there it is. <laughs> Anna. Hi, Anna. That's my beautiful girlfriend, Anna. Oh, excellent. Would you like to be on a live stream? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what do we have here? Hey, how are you doing? Welcome to Tone Vase's channel. I'm Paul, and I just wanted to say hi. I'm going to, you know, help um, 
so there's no dead air as tone says we are decentralized together we are having a blast we're having a great time and oh the camera's over there and i'm looking yeah. down here great so now i can look at you guys so anyway we're talking decentralized and tone's got some so much so much going on um so let me just pun my book because that's what i you know he told me to do this is the crypto factor and this actually interviews 15 of the most successful pioneers and successful people in blockchain in crypto tone is actually in it it's forwarded by joe com antonopoulos is in it john mcafee is in it uh roger veer is in it and yeah so you guys could check that out if you want but let me just check out the chat right here what do you guys think how is every how is your day what are you drinking today tell me something I don't see anyone on the chat though. Is the chat on? The chat chat's on. Oh, there you go. He's like, hey, Paul. Uh, so, uh, damn, I missed the net. I thought he was going to get a glass of water, so I wasn't in a rush, but he was actually oh, going to the elevator. Oh. Um, and I totally missed him, unfortunately. Okay. So, Scott Stanetta, uh, I'm sorry, I, I interrupted you. Uh, we're going to talk about the crypto factor. Yeah, well, I'm, in the, I'm in the book. <laughs> you interviewed me about a year and a half yes. ago. A yeah. little like, uh, about, about 14 months ago for it. Yeah, and, I, and it was when I first started too, so I really appreciated that tone. It was, it was really cool and it really helped out a lot. I was watching your channel for a long time and we, we had a lot of fun on the interview too. We were talking about a lot of things. Yeah, man. no, the interview was great, good. man. The interview yeah. was great. Um, so uh, tell us about uh, the crypto community here in Greece. Okay, so, uh, you know, like all things, Greece is a bit late to the game. But the truth is, we, we do have very passionate people here. I mean, Antonopoulos is from here as well, yeah? And it's growing. We just need to, we just need some help. Well, I know the couch is like, <laughs> no, 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 we just I'm need like, new couches. <laughs> well, I'm, like a, I'm like a midget here compared to you. <laughs> um, well, yeah, I'm a big guy. Oh, God, I have like, so much hate for saying that word now. Right. Is it, oh, I drink God. milk and water only. I was asking what everyone's drinking earlier yeah. on. I drink milk and water only and doing fine. Hope you're fine. To, uh, tell us about you. Well, about me. Um, sure. Uh, so I, I, I started writing books about three years ago. And that was when I had cancer. I had cancer. I was getting chemotherapy. I was, I was having bone marrow transplants. And I saw my everything I built just collapse financially, everything. Right. So I knew I had to recreate myself online. I was a sales trainer. I was an entrepreneur. I was doing different things. So essentially what I did was I wrote uh, Success IAO, Improvise, Adapt, Overcome. And I also wrote The Closers Part 3 um, while I was doing this to recreate myself, to have something to not start from zero when I make it or to leave something behind if I didn't. Anyway, that went into crypto. I got into crypto. I started advising companies. And then I wrote The Crypto Factor Part 1, now writing The Crypto Factor Part 2. And we got the Crypto Factor magazine coming soon. So we're doing quite a lot. Yeah, no, uh, that's great. Uh, yeah, so uh, we finally got to meet. We've been like uh, chatting online a little bit over yeah. time. And uh, yeah, no, thanks. I'm gonna try to get Adam back. Uh, we're gonna talk a little bit more cryptography. And uh, awesome, hey, it was great, great meeting you. If any, you ever any meet, other words? <laughs> yeah, if you ever meet Tone, you gotta know you have to take him to a restaurant with steaks and meat because we we went to a restaurant oh, before we went to a too. restaurant we yeah, yeah yeah we went to yeah 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 we, we, had, we had a steak and then we went to another place and the meat was so much better there was like yeah. we ordered for like three or four it was uh yeah maybe five 
<laughs> and Tony eats more than me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, wait, wait till Jimmy San comes here. You'll go, bro. Oh, insane. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. He crushes me. Uh, all right. Well, all right. Thank you, Tony. I appreciate pleasure. everything. Um, good luck. Uh, you sold out of these things here. Yeah, I, I had one left, but. Um, is this the one I have was to sign? This is the one you have oh, to sign. Can you yeah. sign on camera? You have a pen? Um, oh, yeah, my bag. Just gonna so, grab my bag over. Let's make this official. Yeah. Proof so, of, proof so of whose signature is that? That is Catalina's. Ah, so it's check with Catalina. Oh, okay. Do, do you have one of these on Andreas' signature as well? It, it's, it's on the back. Oh, it's on the back. Yeah. Andreas signed this thing already. Yeah, yeah. All so right, now we have you and another right, 13 people. Perfect. So if anybody wants to forge Andreas's signature, <laughs> that's it right there. So you can forge it now. <laughs> Sorry, Andreas. And if any, anyone wants to oh. forge Catalina's one, that's right there. Um, I need to, before I sign it, can I just borrow that? Sure. I want to make sure that... Uh, just do, all right, do we'll little try it. All right. Put it anywhere you want. God, I hate writing on these things. This is history right now. <laughs> Tone Bay is signing my... This is history. This book will be on eBay for 50000 once I get everyone. I'm <laughs> not just kidding. I'm keeping this one. Is it available as an ebook? Yes, it is. Self picks. It is. You can go to Amazon. You can go to. It's on Kindle. You can go to um, Apple, Barnes and Noble, anywhere you want. Not the best. Depends, Chris Lloyd says at least it's a book shell and not vague descriptions of whatever that was before. I, <laughs> I, I don't know. Did I miss something? <laughs> I interviewed David Trump. Oh, okay, cool. Eric says I like this guy. Hey, I like you too. Hey man, I, I could have used a better pen, but uh, unfortunately, that's perfect. That's perfect, man. I like unfortunately, it. it's my honor, man. That's what it is. All, All right. right, thank you very is. much, Tom. All right, no, thank you. Let me let me just make sure that everyone can forge your signature too. <laughs> so that's right there. That's Boom. Tom. If uh, you can see that, well, maybe for the best. Maybe for the best. Yeah. <laughs> All right, thank you All so right. much. Thanks, man. Take this off here. Awesome. Have fun. Thanks, man. All right, let me uh, grab. Um, I, I really wanted to bring you guys uh, Scott Stanetta. Uh, I've interviewed Scott Stanetta before. Uh, if you find that interview, that would have taken place in around June. Uh, June or July when I was uh, over at the Bitcoin Magazine Conference in San Francisco. I'll, I'll, if I see him walk by, I'll try and get him again. Uh, just so you guys know why I like interviewing uh, Scott Stanetta is that he is referenced uh, right here above Adam back. So that is Scott Stanetta. And these are his references in the Bitcoin white paper, um, Adam back as well. And actually this one uh, at number two, his name isn't here, but he was also, uh, he, that is also, part of his work. He was also one of the guys. Uh, so technically he is involved in four of the, of the eight uh, references in the Satoshi white paper. And he did a presentation about the project he's working on. Uh, apparently he also built a blockchain, which I really wanted to, you know, question uh, the way I just did with David Schwamm. Uh, obviously we have to wait for the white paper on that. All right, let me see if I can get Adam back. Uh, and we'll get an update on Liquid and some other things.
All right, Adam's coming over. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Adam, always a pleasure. Let me mic you up. And um, let's have a little update. Uh, when was the last time we did this? Not that, not that long ago, I believe. Uh, we're running into each other quite often on the speaker circuit. I don't know how you're able to do it. I'm getting slowly burned out with all this travel, but you seem to be doing well. Yeah, well, I resolved to uh, do less travel last year, but I won't be succeeding fully. All right, so you gave a keynote here yesterday in the morning on liquid sidechain. Uh, yeah. So just give us a quick, a quick update. What's going on? Tether was the big, uh, what was the big name that migrated over? Yeah. Um, I recently interviewed Kim.com about his project, and he decided to go with the liquid sidechain uh, to launch his token. Uh, so where, where, where do you see this going forward? And have you heard, you know, more current notable tokens looking to do a switch? Um, yeah, I mean, there are a number of projects in the work. Um, one of them, which has been through a regulatory sandbox, is the Japanese yen stablecoin. So we have a joint venture in Japan with Digital Garage, which is a public market company, and Tokyo Tenshi, which is an interbank uh, settlement service, which is a very old established company in Japan. And they had regulatory approval to operate the Japanese yen as a kind of Bitcoin OTC service for institutions in Japan. And Japan is a pretty big market globally in terms of Bitcoin volume for, for some time. Interesting. So Roger Vera must be like having steam coming out of his ears because uh, he kind of took over Japan with fake Bitcoin. Yeah, actually, I, I don't I don't have visibility in that, that whole thing. So uh, let's see. I mean, the other thing with Tether is pretty interesting. So, I mean, obviously, there's uh, various conspiracy theories that come up around it, but de facto, um, the, I think Paolo, the CTO there, posted a graph which was a kind of stable coin dominance index. So kind of like the Bitcoin dominance index, but on that index, uh, the Tether um, sort of share of the total money in the stable coin space was around 85% and had grown, I guess, like 5% in the last few months. Um, despite you know the various legal drama that's come up and but apparently the picture is even more stark than that which is that the if you look at the sort of volume of trade driven by liquid it's over 95 percent so that's saying that you know in terms of the stablecoin use and the many new entrants competing in that space tether is still Kind of winning in a major way so i guess, oh, I guess yeah. the lesson is that people really they just want the utility and the liquidity and to you know move fiat around so that they can do the crypto trades all right uh very good and uh how are general developments on the liquid sidechain going does it have more liquidity now is it uh there are some people were concerned about hey it's uh, how do you get in how do you get out is it really private uh everything's looking good there yeah, I mean, I think what we're looking for is a few more integrations. So we're working with a number of uh, exchanges, uh, including some of the Chinese exchanges and Bitsu, which is a new international exchange, to have more pairs that can be arbitrated between exchanges. So, you know, particularly uh, exchanges that offer Tether already. So if they add liquid support and Bitcoin support and they can then 
people can then move funds between exchanges within a couple of minutes or move between a cold wallet of their own and exchange that should improve the liquidity and drive arbitrage volume. Yeah, I think Bitsy just had an issue last night with a bad Coinbase uh, price in an index and it kind of spiked the price down. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, I thought I heard something about that. Sorry, guys, I'm not really up to date on all the news. Uh, it's really been difficult in traveling and now I'm off to, uh, I don't even want to say where I'm going because I'm only going to be there like two days and everyone's going to say, hey, can we meet up? Uh, but uh, yeah, so there's, uh, I added like four more countries to my list in the next few weeks. Just been crazy. Uh, where are you off to next? Um, so to Milan. Oh, okay. Yeah, we have an office in Milan. Where you're gonna see Giacomo? Probably if he's <laughs> if he's not on the travels. Yeah. Okay. So uh, another question, like always a concern. Um, has the have the regulator uh, have the regulators reached out to you, looking to understand more about liquid? Um, is that a potential concern uh, that because it is integrated with exchanges? like the CFTC is going to send some kind of a letter saying, hey, we want uh, visibility and control potentially. And um, has uh, I don't know if you are allowed to say if that happened or not. And if it happens, what would potential answer be? Like, uh, I don't think you understand how the technology works. Like, like, like can is that a concern? So, I mean, you can think about Liquid as a um, another blockchain. And so pretty much you know and the exchanges involved are very international so they're exchanges from you know all, all different countries and i think they've largely been treating it as another blockchain and even though it's kind of uh, not a mined blockchain but one that's signed by block signers which are operated by exchanges um in effect that's probably more decentralized than a lot of blockchains you know even though it's operated by a bunch of companies basically so for the user's perspective, you've got a choice of putting your funds as it, I mean, it's, it's optimized for traders, right? So as a trader, if you've got a choice of putting your funds in custody, you know, of one exchange and then whipping it across to another exchange to take a position, you're, um, you've got single exchange risk there. Whereas with liquid, you've got a threshold. So you've got two thirds of the exchanges uh, with control. So it would take a pretty, you know, it, it'd, be, it'd be quite impractical for somebody to hack, you know, two thirds of these exchanges, their, their data centers, their secure room where they're storing their hot wallet and things like that to, to get at the funds. So you have like a pretty good protection plus it's like reasonably decentralized across jurisdictions. And so I think they've typically just been using it on the same basis as they would use uh, another exchange. And in particular, it offers um, actually something that regulators I think are starting to appreciate, which is if you reduce the custody risk, because you know, the consumer protection is partly about whether the exchange is a good custodian and that the user's funds are ring fenced and things like that historically. And with the liquid technology, you can do things like atomic swaps or atomic trades. And there's actually a liquid swap tool. So, you know, we could each have our assets uh, in, a, in a stable coin and in a Bitcoin and make a, a market offer. So I could basically cut and paste into a chat application and uh, you know, give you my offer. I'll, I'll sell you, you know, this batch of Bitcoins at, I don't even know what the price is this morning, but let's say- Yeah, I haven't been paying attention to the price. I know it's my job, but- Yeah, sorry, let's, let's say like 8,500 and 
I hope not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was like 9,000, 9,200. Oh, I was no. like, oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> That's not scary. Uh, no, no, I think you're ideas. right. So it's like <laughs> 9,200 then. So, so I send the offer across. And basically, if you like the offer, you can add your stable coins to it and take the Bitcoin and just post it to the to liquid chain cell. So you're actually, what you've sent is kind of a limit order, but it's, a, it's an atomic one. So you, if you take it, it's final and there's no kind of one one party custody risk that's a two-party kind of swap trade but you can also do things like that involving the exchange where the exchange is taking a commission for providing the order book and introducing you to somebody that wants to buy that so i think the regulators are coming to see that this is a more attractive way to go because obviously they're quite concerned generally about the series of exchange hacks and custody mm -hmm. failures so there's a technology path to to getting away from that environment and actually um showing regulators and consumers that a blockchain can actually be provide a better technology base where you have more soft custody yet you can still trade with your soft custody and i think that also you know is good for exchanges because um people hold off doing some trades because they're worried about the custody risk right now you could take the premium for selling a fork let's say but the cost of doing so is six months of exchange custody risk and then it becomes a tough decision. And if you talk to a number of kind of prop trading shops or, or traders who've done a lot of trades and arbitrage, usually they've got some story somewhere in their you know last year's trading history where they lost some money on some venue. So it is something that people are balancing in their mind is the kind of cost of the ongoing custody risk versus the trade opportunity. So if they can get the trade opportunity without the custody risk or with this kind of network shared custody risk, it will tempt them to take moral trades. They can go all in if that's their mind without worrying about the custody side of it in the same way. All right, so one last question on the exchange side of the equation. Uh, what are your views on BAC? They've officially launched to not much you know, fanfare, uh, nor much volume. And um, what do you think, uh, are you familiar with their security are they going to be part of liquid has there been any discussions have they uh reached out to blockstream for you know consulting on securing the coins and uh bitcoin in general uh so what are your general thoughts or if you know anything about what's going on over there at yeah i mean i don't, don't have an insight into into their you know uh side of the business we've we have um relationship with iState services with the crypto price feed uh, which is sold exclusively by ice and we provide the the data streams so it is the same company yeah, parent yeah company right i think i think Bax is technically i don't know if it's a subsidiary or a spin out but it's got like multiple investors right so i mean yeah i, I don't know but i think that the it's pretty interesting to see wall street uh big big startups coming out of wall street participating it probably helps some types of investors have confidence that they can trade on a platform. And, you know, even for yourself, if you're looking at your choices of trading on a crypto exchange with just a startup um, versus, you know, if you start to see crypto trading offered on Ameritrade or E-Trade or Fidelity or something like that, there's, there's some confidence that comes from knowing, you know, if they if they mess something up and they lose $100 million of Bitcoin out of a hot wallet, they're not insolvent because mm -hmm. they have, you know, uh, 
enormous market caps and assets under management, and they could, they'd obviously be unhappy, but they could uh, cover something like that. Yeah, some bonuses will be cut, but they can get you the money back. <laughs> right. So, so there's that. So, I mean, that's one side of things. Um, but, you know, you can see from what happened with Poloniex that the end users, for whatever reason, are still very interested to use kind of low friction entry point exchanges because Circle bought Poloniex, a lot of users left no Poloniex yeah. and now they're selling it. And so you got to wonder like, why, why are they doing that? Where did they go next? And is that creating a climate where users will skip to the exchange with the lowest friction to enter? It's kind of like the cell phone market, right? So, you know, they might. Yeah, they might it's also want... the original, you know, file sharing market, you know, like pirating of songs, which now I think is significantly reduced. Yeah. So we'll see how it develops. And I mean, I think the, the sweet point is the, the middle ground, you know, the exchanges, which have got a good reputation, a good degree of liquidity, and to see what they do to hold on to the, their market share compared to the Wall Street entrance. And, you know, one of our bets is that it would make a lot of sense for the crypto exchanges to pool their liquidity using the liquid network so that collectively they offer a pretty big, you know, liquidity pool and market competition to the Wall Street entrance. Because the other the other view of the world, other than kind of peer-to-peer -peer network, which liquid is a kind of, you know, exchange to exchange peer-to-peer -peer network that users can run full nodes on, users can transact on, actually users can even create assets on. The exchange listing is the kind of barrier to entry to to actually uh, having users, you know, be able to find and trade your asset. Um, so to see see how that plays out against uh, the Wall Street entrance, because what what the Wall Street guys will typically want to do is to say, well, you know, we'll solve the liquidity problem, just all come and trade on our centralized platform, and somebody will try and set themselves up as the top tier and be the clearinghouse for it all. Um, which is really a return to the old days. So it's not really using I agree. Bitcoin tech for what it, what it can I do. I agree, but we, need that, but we need that giant pool of liquidity to avoid you know, someone throwing in a market order to sell $10 million worth of Bitcoin and the price moves 5%. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think that well, we're hoping that the faster cross-exchange arbitrage coming through from liquid. liquid will we'll resolve that. that. Yeah. I've, I've been hoping for that for over a year now. Yeah, so I think, you know, we'll, we'll see it pick up once there are more stablecoin integrations so that people can complete it. There are people who will trade one-sided, so they've got trading strategies where being able to move Bitcoin fast is enough for them. But really, the, the liquidity is in cycling yeah, we want We all want efficient markets. I mean, you profiting from the misfortune of others is not exactly how efficient markets are built. Right. Yeah. I mean, actually, before Blockstream, I was doing a bit of arbitrage trading myself. And <laughs> that's actually how I got got is I, uh, I was arbitraging between uh, Bitstamp and BTCE. No free lunch. I also I happened to avoid the BTCE hacker, <laughs> but which which happened later. But then I moved on to a different kind of arbitrage trade with Mt. Gox that you know, you couldn't get money out, but the uh, the spread would reverse directions. And so you could switch positions without exiting. But then, you know, the arbitrage funds got trapped in there. So, so Blockstream was almost a hedge fund, is what you're saying, instead of uh, well, a I needed, Bitcoin developer. Uh, I needed um, better arbitrage uh, networks <laughs> tech. So I'm going to have to build it, right? Yeah. Uh, 
Um, all right, uh, let's change gears. I want to do. Uh, we're not, we're not going to cover our uh, lightning on uh, today. I'll get you. I'll, I'll kick that off with our next interview, which probably happens soon since we're always running into each other. Um, so the next topic I want to talk about is uh, give us an update on the mining operation over in the state of Georgia, um, as we discussed in our last interview. Yeah, so we're uh, just piling in more equipment and uh, building out more power and looking on to the next phase. So um, we're using a kind of modular approach. So it's uh, in a sort of containerized mini data center approach, which uh, allows us to reduce costs. It's not in a big warehouse kind of form factor. And that's just, we find the most efficient way to cool and deploy and build equipment, put it on the ground quickly. An ETA on when uh, the first uh, Bitcoin by that operation might be mined? Oh, it's mining Bitcoins today. Oh, it's mining already. Yeah, yeah. Okay, you guys are up and running. Yeah, yeah. Well, we tend not to announce stuff until it's uh, kind of half done. So we don't we don't want to get stuck in the kind of vaporware because then people were saying, oh, is it, are we there yet? Where is it and stuff? So actually the, the whole mining activity had been going on for like over two years by the time we actually did the original announce. So in that case, are you guys um, your own, like a, is it like a Bitfury situation where if you grow, there'll be a slice of the pie that says Bitfury uh, and it will say Blockstream, I guess, or something. Um, or are you part of a bigger pool um, or are you mining in that we don't know bucket? So that's an interesting question. So as, as <laughs> we uh, also put in the announcement, we're operating around pool and using the better hash protocol, which has some decentralization advantages in that, you know, if you were a customer, uh, let's say a, a Bitcoiner or something who bought, you know, a megawatt worth of mining gear and had us host it for you, um, you, you'd be able to run a full node and choose your own blocks. So, you know, technically Bitcoin is, it benefits from miners being decentralized because that's where the fungibility comes from that, you know, if one miner doesn't like your transaction, the next miner will take it. And so it's important that miners be anonymous. So the fact that all of the pool or many of the pools are, you know, putting their brand on it, I think that's really to claim, oh, like we have this much share of the hash rate, you should consider using our pool. But generally speaking, that should be, uh, you know, it should be anonymous as such. So we have to decide how we do that. And because the users can choose their own blocks, like maybe they want to choose, like put their own name on their block or something, right? I mean, if you're doing a bit of mining, you know, you bought $10,000, $100,000 worth of mining gear, and it might take a little while to find a block, but you might want a block that says Tone Vase, you know, this is my That'd block. Great. <laughs> so in that case, the, the blocks would be labeled, you know, by you and not by a pool, let's say. Interesting. So uh, so if my uh, rudimentary understanding is right, so you will have, uh, you will create a pool. Um, so Blockstream will own some of the equipment at that warehouse. Yeah. And you're mining within that pool. You will um, lease. Uh, equipment within the warehouse to those that want you to host it. Yeah. Um, almost like a, uh, I hate the term cloud mining because I'm associated with the scam, but if you're doing it right, then it's legitimate. Yeah. Um, if you, you know, you, you see the struggle with the word cloud well, mining. Well, right, right, right. So, I mean, uh, I think the cloud mining differentiator is that the cloud operator owns equipment, whereas for us, it's hosted mining. Yeah. So, well, for us, we're hosting your equipment. Right. So, you, 
if you buy the equipment, you've taken the capital risk. Where mm-hmm. the problem with the cloud mining is they're you know, signing people up to contracts. Well, historically, right. they sign people up to contracts who don't understand the difficulty adjustment. And, and then they look at it at a point in time, it looks very profitable. But of course, the difficulty will catch up with the price until the next cycle. And so then needs to get a patch line. Okay. So um, let's get back to this. So uh, Blockstream has a mining pool. And um, you have a bunch of your equipment at the, at the warehouse yeah. uh, mining within this pool. Um, others can uh, buy or lease the equipment in this warehouse. And they do they have to be in your pool or they can choose to oh, no, be on can, a different pool? They can choose their own pool. Yeah. They can choose their own pool. Um, and you will also allow, let's say, if I have a miner in my, uh, in my cabin in PA... I can also connect to your pool. Yeah, so we want to make the pool accessible for other other other, other miners. Yeah, accessible. Now, and it sounds like you don't want to announce how much hash rate this pool actually has. So while mm. somebody could join the pool, uh, yeah. the numbers of the pool are not public. So you're stuck in that we don't know uh, bucket. Yeah. But every block that the pool mines, the miner that mined it within the pool can put in their comment. Right. So, I mean, you've got, you got two ways to do it. And we would encourage you to do it in the choose your own block model where you run your own full node. And so then you can, I mean, you have to pay the pool because you want the variance reduction, but you can label it as you want and choose the trans, your, your software is choosing the transactions to go in it. Um, so we think that's interesting and, you know, of course the miner himself knows which blocks, you know, which block proposals he got from the pool, but in aggregate, the, the trail of blocks that get announced <clears throat> are not necessarily correlated with the pool because we might be giving different information to different miners or they're choosing their own blocks anyway, right? And where can people get more information on, uh, your yeah. pool structure. So if you get on like blockstream.com slash mining, we've got the information there. All right, guys, you heard it. Blockstream.com slash mining. Check that out. All right. So I'll get you out of here on this. And it's my usual question, but now we're going to get into a little bit more detail. My usual question is uh, at the end of all of our interviews, have you seen anything in the altcoin space uh, that has been innovative enough to be considered into the Bitcoin protocol? Well, not, not, no. And, and the reason is, um, you know, firstly, I think the biggest reason is a lot of the altcoin activity has been focused on marketing and not technology development. And the parts of the altcoin space that have done technology development have done super high risk things, which will be too risky to consider in Bitcoin directly anyway, or they've done high risk things with not enough, with not quite enough kind of security first focus, which Bitcoin tries to do, right? Because it's a lot of money at stake. And it's really, people in Bitcoin are really not interested in move fast and break things kind of approach, right? Um, so right before uh, you came on, I interviewed uh, David Trump for about an hour. Mm-hmm. And uh, he is, well, he was very cryptic about whether he is or isn't releasing a cryptocurrency. Uh, a lot of mystery there. We have to wait for the white paper, like everybody else. 
I'm telling you, man, if there's a, if there's a legacy that Satoshi destroyed, that's the concept of a white paper. Uh, but yeah. uh, so he's very big on quantum resistance. So mm-hmm. I'm already witnessing a wave of we are the quantum resistant shitcoin. Uh, yeah. And um, how the how do we front run this uh, insanity, right? So what are the concerns over Bitcoin being completely destroyed by a quantum computer? Uh, thoughts on that? Well, I mean, quantum resistant algorithms have been around for a really long time. So there's one by Leslie Lamport, who is coincidentally the same guy that wrote the Byzantine Generals uh, paper. And so he has this hash-based signature algorithm called the Lamport signature. And that's been around since, I don't know, like the 80s or something. The trade-off is the signatures are pretty big, like a few kilobytes. And so people are not real keen to make that trade-off and store their coins in it because it's going to be very heavy transactions. Right. So I think, you know, obviously the where the R&D activity is, is to see if you can get those kind of assurances with more compact signatures. And that's an area of ongoing research. So it's kind of premature to start adopting those because, you know, hopefully we'll see things that have good security reputation, which takes years to build, but are more practically sized. And the other thing is like the urgency, right? So, you know, the people in the R&D space with the quantum physics and material science and uh, building the quantum computers are progressing, but very, very slowly. And, you know, going from two bits to three bits, and I guess into the 50 bit range now, but what they're losing track of is that to do anything useful, you need about 3000 bits. And that's without error correction. If you actually want to use it in practice, you have to error correct it by about a factor of a thousand. So you're talking about minimum viable products of like 3000 bits, and we're on 50. And, you know, there are other questions about like the coherence time, how long it took before the computation collapses, whether that will be long enough, if the physics can even scale that far, and if the error correction is going to work in total, it's going to be a net win. And maybe even fundamental questions about physics and material science, if it's even going to work. So, you know, for me, I'm thinking, like, you know, wake, wake me up when it happens, and it's not going to be for decades. So from that point of view, there's no, you know, particular reason to... Uh, to go heavily into that. And so it's really another one of the kind of altcoin marketing phenomena, which is they, they pick some kind of current hot buzzword and say, well, we've got a coin that, yeah, that well, does that, right? So I mean, I, what do we get next? Like an AI specialized blockchain? Yeah, or, yeah exactly. You know? No, and that, and that has been my big complaint to a lot of these people. I know I've, I've said this to Emin Gunsire, for example, where my big problem is he takes the most obscure theoretical potential of a potential flaw in Bitcoin and presents it like it's fact and imminent and how it's going to destroy Bitcoin. Well, while you put an obvious exploitable and has been exploitable flaw in Ethereum, and then he's like, it's just a growing technology, (laughs) you know? And uh, and that's what bothers me, right? Like Mm. uh, these altcoin promoters, are picking on the smallest theoretical potential problems like their facts while ignoring facts that destroy other coins as eh, just a learning process. 
Yeah, I mean, I think what people should bear in mind is that, you know, if, if Bitcoin does have some area which needs hardening or improving, I mean, there have been small improvements over time where needed. So, for example, the Bitcoin uh, script hash like P2SH is a 160-bit hash on the outside. And with the introduction of SegWit, they took the opportunity to increase that to 256-bit hashes, which for single keys is overkill, but for uh, multi-sigs actually useful. So there was a kind of you know area where you could say, well, with a multi-sig, somebody could try to do a birthday collision on 160-bit hash, and then with a 80-bit, two to the 80-bit, you know, work factor, they could maybe, uh, you know, uh, cheat a, a multi-sig contract or something, which is a large factor, but you know, two to the 80 is not the margin you want to be going for. So Bitcoin, you know, saw that years ahead and fixed it. So you know, you've got to imagine that, you know, $200 billion of vested interest and presumably soon a, a trillion or something, and pretty much the nexus of applied research is going to be able to defend itself and you know develop the consensus to adopt technology to defend its interests right i mean i think one thing you could draw from the the resolution to the fork issues of a couple of years ago is that the market wins in bitcoin right oh, yeah, of course. And, and so you know if there's a technology issue the market's going to want to adopt it and the technologists are going to be all over it because they're very interested in practical applied security and doing things in a very secure and safe way. But that doesn't mean that they're gonna move slow if it's necessary to move fast. They're just being thorough when there's, because they're planning ahead and there's ample time. But you know, if there was a life issue, you'd be surprised at how quickly Bitcoin could react. And there have been points in time where there have been quick reactions around uh, you know, was it a, a particular kind of reorganization period around a fork or something where something was resolved in a you know, matter of hours, basically. No, and that's great. All right, so final question. Uh, when is the potential next big soft fork to get Schnorr signatures and potentially bulletproofs and what else is gonna be in that update? Um, so I'm not like uh, totally up to date, but the there seems to be, you know, there are a number of BIPs that have been published around Schnorr and that's, you know, it's it's uh, being developed by a, a range of people, but a few people at Blockstream are certainly working on that and very interested to see Schnorr signatures for the advantages they bring. And um, so given given the time frame, I mean, I've got to imagine that that will be a topic for next year because, you know, it takes time. There have been proposals and there's a kind of um, an open kind of uh, review process going on, which you can join. So I think some of the guys at Optech are trying to sort of make something a bit more coordinated where you can join a kind of study group and listen to the trade-offs and try and form an opinion and add your opinions to the review process. So you know, once that kind of process is completed to people's satisfaction, then it would be a position where they could make a proposal. And I guess the other thing that has to be done is to figure out what kind of soft fork it's going to be you know a bip 8 or a bip 9 or something different and what as to what's going in it i believe the proposal is combination of taproot and schnorr but only the um 
aggregation across inputs to a single transaction. There's a kind of uh, more complicated one which can do signature aggregation across um, multiple transactions. So I think that would come later. So it, do it doesn't have all of the signature so, aggregation. So do you think this would uh, be up for vote before or after the halving in May? Hmm. Because that's guessing... also around the time of our conference, understanding Bitcoin. Yeah. Uh, so it could be very interesting. We'll definitely do a panel on it and uh, could be in the middle of another minor controversy. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, hopefully not, because it's just, uh, uh, no, you know, you would, you would think actually that Segway itself uh, that, that Eric, Eric Lombroso still hasn't been the same. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, I think maybe where Segwit got, it became a victim of, you know, some kind of drama that was largely unrelated at the time, but also because it actually increased the block size Segwit, right, in practice, it, it became sort of, tied with the other potential block size mechanism of you know changing a, in a more simple way and with schnorr there is no relation to size it's just a more efficient signature and i, I think the, the kind of fixation on raw size was not that helpful because really what you care about is how many people get paid from the transactions in a block it's not even the number of transactions it's the number of like outputs like number of outputs minus the change outputs or something like that that you get in a block and that's increasing over time you know i mean the average the average block size is uh, much bigger than it was i think the bitcoin blockchain is around 250 gigs but it's grown at about 60 gigs a year so you know it would take uh, another three or four years and it will be 500 so you know it's really and, and that's going to accelerate because people, and the Ethereum blockchain by then would be about 40 terabytes. Yeah. <laughs> EOS is already close to 40 terabytes. Wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the the, the challenge is at some point if the, you know, if the capability to sync the chain uh, becomes very tenuous, it's it it sort of ceases to be a meaningful blockchain. I think, you know, at least power users have got to be able to sync and verify the thing in a tolerable time period for it to be considered a public blockchain yeah agreed agreed and yeah. um so um just want to mention I'm, I'm still trying to convince adam back to come to unconfiscatable as well I think it should go on sale next week in vegas uh hopefully we'll get his picture up there soon i'll let you out on a final question i'm good with uh controversial questions these days uh i don't think i've asked you this before um so if you had a time machine and so right before Satoshi uh, releases the white paper, what would you have suggested that he should have done that he didn't do? Hmm. I mean, there were a few kind of minor design issues, but I don't think, you know, I mean, they were fixed without incidents. Um, and you do have the benefit of 10 years of history. Well, I mean, you can't, you can't really blame the guy for kind of R&D that grew out of it that improved it over time. I and mean, obviously the, uh, the HD wallets and because you know, the original Bitcoin had no good backup mechanism. So you had to like save the wallet file and it was creating another batch of 100 addresses when it ran out of the first batch. And if you didn't back it, if I you didn't notice that, that you didn't notice that and back it up, you could actually lose funds because you like didn't back up the next batch of addresses. So 
you know, the HD wallet is great because it makes a master backup key that can uh, recover all addresses this wallet could ever create, which is very nice, but you know, people hadn't figured that out at the time. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that there's anything no, no, but, that, but, that's a, but that's a minor thing. Uh, yeah. no, it's not minor, right? Like, it, it, I don't want to make it sound like losing 20,000 Bitcoin is minor. Yeah. But, uh, um, but that is something that was quickly addressed and changed. Yeah. And it was easy to change it. We're right. talking about like a bigger picture, right? Yeah. Would I mean, you I think... have, would you have eliminated the halvings? Would you would you suggest, hey, this uh, uh, crazy shock every four years is not good, even though it creates a lot of hype? Or hey, maybe um, you shouldn't have you know set that one megabyte block limit? Or uh, well, I mean, or I... hey, maybe we, maybe you should have just went ahead and did Schnorr signatures from the start. Or like well, yeah, to yeah. avoid the segwit debate, like like the big things that we can't change. Well, I mean, it would have been good to uh, avoid that malleability bug in the first place that, that necessitated <laughs> segwit. And uh, it was something I noticed actually because I was asking questions in 2013 about you know that issue. Um, and I think. The bigger thing that concerned me, and this was one of my first comments about Bitcoin with my friends in uh, kind of applied crypto space. I know a lot of people who do kind of crypto library and protocol design from earlier in my career. And, you know, my comment was, well, he really should have uh, made it more kind of cryptographically fungible or private. And there were known... Uh, papers on how to do this. So there's a 1995 paper uh, called Auditable Electronic Cash by Sander and Tashmar, which is actually, um, so Zero Coin, the paper, is an optimization of that paper. So that paper, like it predates Bitcoin. So, you know, my first complaint was, well, why didn't you use that? And, and actually, you know, in fairness, there's a reason why I didn't use that because the coins are like tens of kilobytes. So it's kind of inefficient. But you know, it's just to say that I think I think privacy and fungibility is, you know, that that was a pill to swallow. For so people. if you yeah. were to go back, you would have told them to make it a little more private at the protocol level. Yeah, more I mean, private, more fungible. Yeah, I mean that's that's where confidential transactions came from as well, because like I became more active in the Bitcoin space. So I was like, well, let's try and uh, fix up some of the privacy and fungibility things and there are some other things which haven't been implemented to date which could improve that kind of thing without introducing any kind of complicated technology and crypto risk even so there's scope to improve but it's harder to improve a moving system and i do think there, you know there may be an effect where you want to get privacy and fungibility features into the core protocol because changes to the core protocol become harder over time. Do you think that is still possible to get privacy uh, and fungibility into the core protocol of Bitcoin, or we're stuck with what we have and we have to find the best way to do it as a second layer solution? Well, I mean, I hope it's not too late. And I think one approach to get more fungibility would be extensibility. So that's partly why I'm excited about the simplicity kind of extensibility scripts mechanism, which was originally proposed for Bitcoin, but we've, uh, you know, 
made a developer release in Element, and we'll put it into Liquid Live next year. So it's a very low-level extensibility language for Bitcoin. So for example, if Bitcoin had it today, we wouldn't need a soft fork for Schnorr signatures. We could just implement them as a kind of compact function and uh, you know, replace that with C implementations later, but you wouldn't have to, you could just use it. So I think that kind of extensibility is, tends to be less controversial because people would say, well, I mean, don't you want Bitcoin to be extensible and more flexible about you know, what kinds of contracts and you know, smart vaults and storage mechanisms so you can build? So uh, building on that, so do you see a potential future 10 years down the line where we're all using liquid Bitcoin and uh, the Bitcoin settlement on the Bitcoin blockchain is only achieved by the major players like the Amazon and the Google and the banks and maybe mm. even central banks when all the people are using liquid Bitcoin because it's more private and faster and off chain? Well, I, th I think that that would be unfortunate. So that would be the point at which I become a slightly bigger blocker, actually, because uh, my, my <laughs> well, now we're getting somewhere with this interview. So, so, so my view is that I mean, Liquid helps in the sense that, to my mind, in, in being a layer two that pulls transactions that don't need the main chain into other layers. So I think Lightning is great because it offers advantages, it's faster, it's Well, cheaper. Lightning could also be on Liquid. Right, and and Liquid is sort of similar, but it's optimizing for the exchange traders, which is hard to support on, on Lightning because of liquidity issues. And you know, if you're moving a large amount of Bitcoins from one exchange to another exchange, does the Bitcoin blockchain really care about that? And does that help anybody? I would argue almost no, because in custody A to custody B, what does the Bitcoin blockchain and all of history care about that trade, right? It's not helping you, it's not helping the exchange, it's, and it presents price insensitive competition for Bitcoin transactions. You know, the big traders don't care whether it's 10 cents or a dollar, so they stick a dollar on it just to be sure, right? And if you get into a real trading frenzy like we had like a week ago, the fees went from, I think, the normal, well, lately normal one Satoshi a buy to I don't know, 20 for a few hours or something, right? So it just shows you that the traders don't care about the price of the transactions. And so if they if they get benefit from trading on a on an opt-in layer, they they present less competition to the main uh, Bitcoin chain and leave it for the things that it's best for, which is you know cold storage, sensor resistant transactions and so on. But I think to my point of view, you know, some people say, well, like the main chain is like, uh, I forget what it is, like the Bank of International Settlements or some, some kind of like top tier, not very high transaction volume, but very expensive one. And, and I would say that that's, that doesn't seem like a good idea to me because institutions or very wealthy people who are able to afford those kinds of things already have access to asset protection and a degree of financial privacy using offshore vehicles and trusts and structures and things. And so Bitcoin is, as Obama said, you know, a Swiss bank account in your pocket. So it reduces the barrier to entry to financial sovereignty, asset protection, financial privacy. And so, you know, for that to get priced out, I, th I think that kind of hurts Bitcoin's 
differentiator, which is lowering the barrier to entry to financial self-sovereignty and things like that. So, so I think that, that ideally, really ideally has to remain price competitive so that it makes sense for somebody, you know, with $1,000 or $10,000 to transact or process or store wealth from and not get into a situation where it's only really accessible to people with, you know, a million dollars of uh, savings to store because those people have already got alternatives. It's, it's the guy with, you know, 1,000, 10,000, 100,000 to, to protect. It doesn't really have an option right now, particularly in some countries, right? So, but, you know, I, would, I wouldn't worry too much about the, the long term because the technology is improving. So we might even end up with the opposite problem, which is somebody finds a way to do dependable, recursive bulletproofs or something that has really got trustable cryptography, but makes a proof of valid validity of the whole blockchain. And if you have that, you can change the scaling story entirely while keeping the trust. And we'll have a different problem, which is there's like no scaling limit or like no practical scaling limit. And so fees drop to zero. I mean, I always find it hilarious when people argue that, you know, that what's going to happen to the fee market when everybody uses lightning. Well, I mean, you know, if you've got a thousand X um, recirculation in lightning, it's the same as a gigabyte block, right? You know, it's, it's just supply and demand. If, you're, if your actual blocks or your virtual blocks are using layer two on top of layer one are a given size and the size exceeds demand, the price of the transactions is gonna to drop to zero. So you either, you either want that or you don't, but to argue that, um, oh no, lightning is bad because it takes fees from miners is, is kind of ridiculous, right? So I, I think it's just supply and demand. Right. Well, and the other issue was they were arguing lightning is bad because it takes fees from miners yeah. at the same time, claiming that their blockchain by making the blocks bigger is cheaper. Yeah. So yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's the same it's, thing. It's right? a so, walking contradiction. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I mean, the other, the other fun thing, uh, which is kind of ironic is there are, you know, so the, the Bitcoin satellite service has this, uh, that we operate a Blockstream has this, um, sort of short message API where you can page send messages using lightning and there are Twitter bots that are listening to it and retweeting the messages that come over the satellite or, or links to them because they can be bigger than a tweet. And uh, there are people on there who are clearly arguing about big blocks and the irony that they're paying lightning to do it is because there'll be like messages saying, oh, it's hilarious. you know, lightning sucks and it doesn't work and it, and it, and it's but they're like paying vaporware. A, but they're paying a fee to say it. But they paid a lightning fee to say it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so I'm like, man, the irony in that tweet is uh, just it. amazing. Yeah. I love it. All right, Adam, I'll let you go on this. Uh, thank you so much. And sure. um, I might not see you until Unconfiscatable. I think this is it uh, uh, for our paths crossing, but you never know. All right. Thank All right. You. Thank you. Hey, guys. Oh, man, this stream has been going on for a little while. Um, I got to actually go on stage soon. And they wanted to interview me here for uh, the, the conference's YouTube channel. Um, I know a lot of you are dying to get my price update. I haven't seen the, I, I, it, you know what? I'm not going to complain about how busy I've been because it's totally ridiculous. Uh, and uh, that's why there hasn't been any price shows. 
Uh, so let's go take a look at the price. I have no, honestly, I have no idea what's going on. I was really looking forward to interviewing uh, Stornetta again, Scott Stornetta. I don't see him. If I see him walk through the room, because I, because uh, he went uh, up to his room, I guess, uh, which is unfortunate. He's in the thumbnail. I was hoping to get him. Um, let's see what's going on uh, with the price. I haven't done any shows on that. And uh, let's go take a look. Always love interviewing Adam back and uh, we'll circle back to David Schwamm. So we are in the $9,100 range. Uh, this is the weekly chart. We are now above all three moving averages, which is a positive sign. One of the moving averages is downtrending, which is not a good sign, but you can see how this seven period moving average will reverse itself. Uh, to, oh no, it's still going down tomorrow sorry, next week, but after that, it will start trending back up, which is a good sign, and then it would just need to cross over. Uh, so we'll keep an eye on that. Uh, this remains a very interesting week of uh, uh, reversal, but it is too early to announce that this is going to hold. We are in the middle of a pullback, and we would need to go to the daily chart in order to see uh, what's going on. So here is the daily chart. The daily chart um, had a big rally off this downward trend line and Fibonacci line um, while making a new low in the swing of 47.5% down from the swing high of 13,800. This rally stopped dead cold at the setup trend line. Again, no one should be surprised. These lines have been fairly accurate in the past. We also could not close the daily chart in a very in a, in a critical way. We are continue pulling back. The daily chart technically went into a short trade using sequential, but using a very critical 200-day moving average, the price held. So I would say that the current environment is in a bit of a no trade zone right now. But keep in mind that the 128-day moving average is now trending down, and it has reversed the price already in a somewhat significant way. It has reversed it for a good $800. Um, I would give this a little bit more time to resolve itself. It is very possible that the secondary low for 2019 has been confirmed and it's time to go to new all-time highs. Um, but it's not over yet, okay? It's not over yet. Uh, so we gotta, we gotta wait and see, we gotta wait and see, okay? Um, so I'm gonna wait and see approach. I don't think there's a real need for these trading TA videos right now because not much is happening. 12-hour chart, not very interesting. Four-hour chart, not very interesting. Um, I'm more curious on the traditional markets. Ethereum uh, is got rejected by its moving average. Notice how the moving averages in Ethereum are declining. I mean, there, there's nothing impressive here. I mean, sure, Ethereum went from... Uh, how much did it rise? We went from... 0.0162 up to 
big rise, but hey, this is not a good looking chart. The dead cat bounce couldn't even get you back to the breakdown level of 0.028. So nothing to really write home about here. And if Ethereum goes below 0.017, uh, put a fork in it, literally. And it's probably, it probably will fork sooner or later. Um, haven't seen any of the other shit coins. I still have an open claim that the Binance scam coin will be reduced to below, uh, will be reduced into the negative zone by end of year. Looks like I'll fail on that. Maybe, who knows? It's at 37% now against Bitcoin. Still doing well. This is gold. Gold is on a sequential 13, but it's in a consolidation zone. So not really too interesting to me. Um, yeah, gold's consolidating, not that interesting. Uh, silver is going to be the same. Oil, also consolidating, not that interesting. S&P 500. S&P 500 had a sequential 13 a couple of days ago. It didn't mark the top the day after marked the top. We hit a new all-time high. I mean, that is saying something. I remain a bull of the S&P 500. We're going to have a nine next week. Ideally, that nine would be at the top, and we can have a little bit bigger of a correction, uh, and we will see how that goes. Uh, the weekly S&P um, hit this trend line once again and got rejected, but it is a green two above a green one on a weekly scale, so I remain bullish the S&P 500, uh, fully invested in my retirement fund at S&P 500. I mean, it's going up. Let it go up. Um, Lyft had earnings. Uh, I yeah, I, I no, I had no idea. Wasn't paying attention. Uh, took a little bit of a hit, uh, but um, let's see what happens uh, today when the market opens. We're at 6 a.m. I believe today's Friday, and um, we'll go into next week and check it out. All right, guys. I think the stream has gone on long enough. I think I've been doing this for over two hours now. I'm gonna stop the screen share. I really wanted to bring you uh, Scott Stanetta, but it didn't work out. Really disappointed about that. I'll try and get him again next time. And um, thank you all for watching, guys. Uh, I don't know if this is being live streamed or not. My presentation is coming up in two hours. I got to do some more interviews and uh, I got to sign off and I'll, I'll see you all on the next one. Bye, guys.